I have absolutely no idea what that was all about. Did that seem just a little bit awkward and maybe weird? I mean, were they, uh, were they protesting as a, as a worship team? I mean, what was, what was that all about? Seriously, I mean, what? Well, that's how awkward it must have felt for the people living in the walls of Jericho. When they looked out and saw the Israelites being led by warriors, followed by seven priests with horns, followed by this golden strange box, followed by more warriors, followed by the people. And every day for six days, they would sound those horns and they would walk one time around the city. And I just have to imagine people were just kind of looking at them, wondering, what are they doing this is weird. This is, I mean, this is awkward. This is strange. What's with these people walking around, parading, blowing their horns? What's coming down? What's taking place here? Not used to this. Isn't that how we do war? Who are these weirdos? That's a literal translation of the Canaanite language. And I have to imagine that for Joshua and the Israelites, it was a little strange too. I mean, God sometimes asks you to do weird things and to march around those walls, knowing that inside of those walls are very brave warriors who are ready to take you on if they have to, that from those walls, arrows can be fired, that from those walls, rocks can be thrown at you. I mean, how intimidating is it when when you're just walking around blowing your horn. Horns. It was just a strange and awkward situation. And 40 years earlier, when God had told his people to go into the promised land and take places like Jericho, The reconnaissance team that went in to see how feasible it was came back. All 12 came back. And 10 of the 12 said, no way. There's just no way we are going to be able to take them down. It's an impossible task for us. In fact, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 31, we read their negative report since the other men who had explored the land disagreed, they disagreed with two who said, you know, Joshua and Caleb who said, let's go, let's take it. They said, we can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. Everybody was paralyzed, and nobody wanted to go. In fact, they tried to commit mutiny against Moses, really against God. And God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years till that unbelieving generation died off. What went wrong? Well, if we go back to our diagram that we've been using, we can talk about what went wrong. Remember, it all begins with God. 
God is in control. And we have been learning that God is always at work. We've been talking about God at work on the macro level. That is, in the world, he controls the universe, he's sovereign. And God is also at work in the micro level. That means God is at work with you and me personally, with our families, with our church. He pursues us in a loving, intimate relationship because he wants to uh, bring us into a relationship with himself, but also into his great work. And so we have our part to do in this. And so God invites us to join him. Imagine God invites us to join him in his work to save this world. He does this by speaking to us. We've been talking about that. And normally when God speaks to us, it creates a bit of a crisis in our life. And then we have to adjust to God. And when we adjust by trust and obedience, we have the joy then of experiencing God. And what we're talking about this weekend is this crisis. That moment when God speaks to us and says, here's what I want you to do. And we're absolutely scared and intimidated by it. Because normally when God speaks to us and calls us to act, it is to do something that is bigger than we are. It is beyond our capacity and our ability. And so those ten spies, when they came back and gave their bad report about the land, they were absolutely right. From a human perspective, there was no way that they were going to go into the promised land and defeat the Canaanites. They had well-fortified cities. They were, they were brave. They were warriors. They were strong. And the Israelites were like grasshoppers in their sight. But here's the problem. Those ten had their eyes on themselves. And they saw what God was calling them to do. And they realized they didn't have the capacity to do it. But God wanted them to trust him that he would do it for them. And only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, who lived to actually go into the land, believed that the battle was already won because God had called it. They were already in adjustment mode. They were ready to go. The rest, they were holding back. Have you ever been around uh, uh, people like that? Maybe when you were growing up as kids or whatever, you know, dad or mom said, hey, we're going to go do this adventure. We're going to go do this thing. Or you're with your friends. Hey, let's go do this thing. And you're gung-ho and all excited about it. But you got a bunch of naysayers saying, oh, it's too dangerous. It's too hard. It's too long. It's too much. And then everybody decides, well, we're not going to go. And you just sit there and you just, it just is frustrating because you're ready to go. You're excited about it. And I always feel for Joshua and Caleb because they got to wait for 40 years. Because you guys hurry up and just die so we can get in there and do the job that God, that God called us to do. Well, 40 years later, all right, God has said, it's time to go. And once again, there's a crisis. And the crisis is, are you, gonna, are you going to trust God and go into Canaan land and believe that God can deliver this immense army into your hands. These Canaanite fortresses, these Canaanite people who had not shrunk and gotten any smaller. Can you believe it? And they did. They responded to the crisis with faith, with belief that God knew what he was doing. And in Joshua chapter 6, 
We read about this in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. It says, But the Lord said to Joshua, I've given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. I don't know if you'd like to underline your Bible or highlight on your iPad Bible, but I would just underline that section that says, I have given you. Because God's making it clear, it's nothing you're going to do. I have given it to you. I've already handled this, okay? You just got to go in and take it. Verse 3, you and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. Love that. Hope it's on DVD, Blu-ray in heaven, don't you? By the way, the instructions that Joshua gave the people is, even though the horn is going to be sounded on those six days, you guys don't say a word. You guys keep quiet. And I just got to believe there are some people walking around that town that must have thought to themselves, man, this Joshua is nuts. This is crazy, but I'm not going to say anything because I remember what happened to the other group, you know, 40 years ago. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And God gave them the city. Now, was it their shout that brought it down? No. Was there, you know, was God using some kind of sound vibrations to bring the walls down? No, 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 no. All right? God just was letting them help him. All right? Like God lets us help him in his work. And their job was to shout. Actually, their job was to praise and to worship. Yahweh, the God Almighty, he brought the walls a tumbling down, and God showed up in Canaan land. And fear spread throughout the land because God was there. They'd heard about God and were scared, but now God was there. What would happen? What would happen if word got out in the western suburbs that God had shown up at the Compass Church? Things were happening here that could not be explained in any other way. Atheists were coming to faith. Marriages were being healed. People who were physically ill were being made well again. Reconciliation was taking place. There was no bigotry. Strangers felt like friends. People driving by strangely were drawn in and were coming to faith. People were having God speak to them in visions and dreams, revealing himself to them. And people of other religions were coming in and their lives were being changed. And great works of God were being done as missionaries were being sent out from the Compass Church around the world. And multi-sites were being established and we couldn't keep up with the numbers that we needed. Do you think people might think that God had shown up if something like that started taking place? I do. Of course, we know God can't do anything like that these days, right? Well, I guess you don't think he can. I think he can. He's proven it over and over and over again. God can still work like that. But he's got to have people who believe that he can still do great and mighty things. I like what Henry Blackaby wrote. He said the turning point in following God's will is when he invites you to join him in a God-sized assignment. You will realize that you cannot handle it on your own. 
this is the point at which many people decide not to follow God and therefore do not experience him at work in their lives. And that's why I think a lot of us individually, personally, in our families don't experience God at work. Because we never trust God for something bigger than us. And that's why I think a lot of churches don't experience God at work. Because they are unwilling to trust God for something bigger than themselves. They can only think about doing it in their own strength. And so when a lot of people in the world look at the church what they honestly see are a group of religious people who are doing their very best to effect change, and for the most part, they do a lot of good, but there's no evidence that God is there because it's really not different than than the, the Rotary or Kiwanis or the Lions Club or any other charitable organization. It's just a group of folks, and the larger we are, and the more of us there are, the more we can do. But there's no way anybody can stand back and say, wow, what happened there was God-sized, supernatural. Only God could have done that. And I honestly don't know of a church right now where I could say to you, they're doing stuff that, man, only God could do. I know some great churches like the Compass Church all across the United States. Big churches, small churches, large churches who do a lot of good. I know there's some wacky ones out there, okay, who do a lot of weird stuff and say it's God. But I'm talking about like where you step back and you go, man, that, there's revival going on there. That is God at work. Now, maybe there are some out there. Prayerfully, there are some out there. But where God is really showing up. Because here's the deal. If God really showed up, they just wouldn't have enough room for everybody. Because people so desperately want to see and so desperately want to experience God. But the opportunity is there. The opportunity for us to believe God and trust God is there. What's missing? What's the problem? The answer is a very simple word. It's called faith. A lot of us and a lot of churches truly lack faith, God-sized faith. Look what it says in Hebrews 11.6. In Hebrews 11.6, if you have your Bibles open, or you can write this down, look it up, it says this. And it is impossible to please God without faith. I'd circle that. I'd highlight it. I'd draw little loops around it. I'd memorize that. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. I cannot have a relationship with God unless I have sincere faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that principle is also true in all aspects of life. You and I, in our lives, individually, collectively, as a church, we cannot please God If we don't exercise faith. Now here's the question. Why can't you please God without faith? Because if you don't exercise faith. It means you're depending on yourselves. And not God. And God doesn't get the glory. So God's just not going to be part of something. Where he doesn't get the glory. Right? He wants the glory. The glory belongs to him. He's the one that's doing the work. And so when we put faith in him. God does great things. Amen? The question for you and me is, are we practicing that kind of faith in our God? Are we willing to believe God for things that are bigger than us? 
greater than us. Will we trust God? Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. That's what faith is. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. So faith is believing what hasn't happened yet. The children of Israel have to believe that if they go out there and march around those walls six days, once a day, the seventh day, seven times, the horn sound, they shout that the walls are going to come crumbling down and they're going to go in. they got to believe that. If they don't believe it, it's not going to happen. But God says it won't happen until you take some action and you trust me and you're obedient. You've got to take that step of faith, though you haven't seen the walls go down yet. Now, here's something very important in this passage of Scripture, and we're going to get into what I want to call some very bad theology that people practice today. Hebrews 11, 1, it says, Faith is the confidence that what we hope for, what we hope for, will actually happen. Hope is like fuel to faith. You know, a plane can't take off unless there's fuel in it, right? Faith can't take off unless it is filled with the fuel of hope. Now, here's the question. Where does hope come from? Hope comes from God's Word. Hope comes from the Word of God. The Word of God, what God has revealed about himself and what God has revealed about his purposes is what gives me faith. It's what gives me hope and that hope is what generates faith in my life. Now, here's the bad theology. There are people out there who write books and who preach sermons and want to teach us that we can use faith to better ourselves. That the Word of God is almost like a book of spells, promises to claim and scriptures to grab and then bring those to God, all right, and then make demands of God to make me healthy, wealthy, and happy. You've heard the teachers, haven't you? The seed of faith you need to have, the little trinket that you need to buy, the rug, the oil, whatever it is, and if you'll send in your $1,000 seed gift of faith, God is going to do something absolutely astounding and miraculous in your life. And people show up by the droves. And a lot of them are poor people. Kind of like playing the lottery, hoping, you know, that, that if you do the right thing and follow the right recipe and claim the right scriptures, you're going to benefit. And that's just bad, bad theology. See, if, if my mindset is that faith is going to God and using his word to claim something to fulfill my wishes, my dreams, and my purposes, I've got it all wrong. And that's why God doesn't show up. Because I'm actually trying to get God to do my will. Fulfill my purposes for myself, for my ministry, for my church, for my family, for my life. And that isn't what it's all about. You see, faith is about believing in what God wants to do to fulfill his purpose in life. Very different. Very different. God's asking us to exercise faith in him and use his word and his promises with the hope that if I trust and believe in God, 
He is going to do something great. He's going to do something powerful that will glorify him. Now, what is God's purpose in the world? What is the one thing God wants to do in this world more than anything else? The Bible makes that really clear to us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years like a day. Verse 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. That is his promise to return, as some think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That's why, that's this work that God is about in this world. That's why God put his church in the world. That's why God leaves us here. To be this this army of loving witnesses, this salt and light, these truth sayers and, and, and lovers who show forth God's grace and God's love so that people will come to faith. And when I'm willing to believe God for that, and when I'm willing to act and trust God in my life and in my church for what matters most to his heart, guess what? When God says, you'll trust me for what I want to do to save this world, I'm going to do things that are bigger than you, but you trust me and watch what I'm going to do. Now, how many of us have trusted God for something like that? How many of us have put faith in God for something like that individually or as a church? And believe that God really wants to use my faith, wants to use my life, wants to use my gifts, wants to use my capacities even beyond myself to fulfill his purpose. Because get this, think about this now. Think about the process. If I put faith in what matters most to God, and that is God's desire to save a lost world, and God shows up as a result of that, and God does great things that can't be explained by any human effort, the world that's out there is going to see that, and they're going to be what? Many are going to be attracted to it, aren't they? Because they're going to say, human beings can't do that. Human beings can't accomplish that. Only God can do that. Only God can accomplish that. What is there for the world to look at today when it comes to the church that would cause the world to say, I want that? Please don't take this wrong, all right? Please don't take this wrong. But it's not about music. It's not about dress. It's not about lights. It's not about media or style. In all the ways that we try to be relevant to the culture, I'm not disregarding that. I'm not playing it out. I actually think it's important because you've got to behave like a missionary. All right? The problem is, a lot of times, that's as far as we go and wonder where God is. Why more isn't happening. That's just bells and whistles. It's just, as, it's just as bad as a church that remains in the cutting edge of the 1940s. You ever been in a church like that? It smells like it's still way back when, you know, things haven't changed. And, you know, everything's the same color and they're singing the same songs. They got the little board with the numbers, you know, the hymns and how much was given. And you know what? And you walk in and you feel like you've just gone in a time machine to the very boring past. Right? Okay? 
you could be in the most contemporary church with the greatest lights, the greatest sound system, the greatest performers, the best voices in the whole world. That isn't going to make a difference. What makes a difference is when you're believing God for something bigger than yourself. And God shows up. And God shakes things up. And people encounter God. People aren't going to encounter God until you and I start encountering God ourselves by believing God for something that is bigger than and greater than ourselves. You say, well, how do I start this? How do I engage this? How does this happen in my life? Let me give you some steps. These are some things that I think on a personal level and on a corporate level we have to be willing to do. Here's the first step. You got to determine to know only Christ and God's will for your life. You got determined to only know Christ and God's will for your life. You got to get rid of your own agenda. You got to go to God and you got to go to His Word without this mindset that it's about me and what can God do for me. And I'm willing to put faith in God if He'll do big things for me. You got to get rid of that. Your mindset has to be God, I only want to know you and I only want to do what is what you want to accomplish, what big things you want to do that I can't in my own strength. That's all I want to know. That's all I want to know. Number two, you got to immerse yourself in the Word and in prayer. We talked about it last weekend. If you missed last weekend, go online, watch, or listen to it. But you got to immerse yourself in the Word of God and in prayer. You know, they sell these little books that have all the promises in the Bible. I've decided those are dangerous. Because you're pulling, you're pulling Scripture out, oftentimes out of context and then grabbing those promises. Look at the context those promises occur in. you got to get to know the Word in its context. So you know how to believe. You know how to have faith in. You know how to use those promises and pray in a way that honors God, that glorifies God. Number three, and, and you know, Henry Blackaby teaches this, and I love this. See where God is already at work in your life and join Him. And join him. See where God is already at work in your life and join him. It's not this mystery, God, what is your will? Take a look around you. What is God's will? What is he doing? Then get in there and join him. You're like, well, well, that would be a bit of a crisis. Duh. (laughs) You've already begun the journey now, haven't you? I don't want to, I won't use her name, but there's a a lady in our church who, uh, I just we, I, I sat with her uh, this week um, at our lead here class, and and um, she, the, the, what I heard from her is she's just gotten really passionate about the whole issue of of uh, rescuing these girls who were caught in the sex trade. And man, I tell you what, uh, she's pouring herself into it. She sees a need. And what God is doing, and God is speaking to her heart as she's responding to that. Hey, that excites me. See, that starts at the very personal level. Where is God at work, and how is it connecting to your heart? You feel drawn to it. Well, then step into it. That might be your first step of faith of believing. That would be a big thing right there. That might cause some people to look at you in your life and say, wow, I never thought you, were, you would do something like that. What caused that? God. Then what's the next step going to be? Then what's the next step going to be? See what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be these huge leaps and jumps. God oftentimes leads us in stages. He's done that in my life. And as we're faithful here, God gives us a bigger assignment that we're not capable of. And when we do it together as a church, it gets even bigger what God can do. Next step, if you want to jot this down. uh, Join God in the areas he is working in around your life. That's kind of redundant, all right? 
consider, next step, consider what you can do. Already talked about that. Consider what you can do. Lastly, believe God for more than what you can do. Believe God for more than what you can do. You know, like in giving, for instance. Here's what I think I can do. Here's what I think budgetarily I can do and I can give. Now, I'm going to believe God for a little bit more than that. I don't know how he's going to do it, how he's going to provide for it, but I'm going to trust him for it. Now, that, for a lot of people, (laughs) especially for Dutch, is a crisis. Is a crisis. You see how you can use those principles? It's like, here's what I can do. Then add another aspect that says, this is only what God can do. And I know God wants to do more. And I'm willing to be flexible to that. Now listen carefully. It doesn't always work itself out in a way that the world would look at and say, wow, look how successful, look how big, look how much you've accomplished. Sometimes what God calls us to do that is bigger than ourselves will look like failure in the eyes of the world. But it gives him great glory. And I think about, I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my favorite theologian, who was alive during World War II and died as a martyr. You've, you've heard me say that. And I got to visit his house a few weeks ago. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a brilliant mind. He was a brilliant theologian, a, a man who dearly and deeply loved God. But he decided, when everybody else was saying, leave Germany, leave Germany, leave Germany, your life's in danger, he decided to stay. And he called out the liberal church. He called out his fellow pastors and peers who were going along with Adolf Hitler. And he started a counter-movement against them. His own seminary, training his own pastors, group of pastors, to be faithful to God and faithful to God's word. And many of them were arrested. Many of them were killed. And then he took an even more incredible step. This peace-loving man decided, you know what? Um... I'm going to help in this conspiracy to have this Antichrist assassinated and killed because look what he is doing. Look at all those Jews who are being murdered. He has to be stopped. And people are telling him, you're going to die if you do that. You are going to die if you do that. And he said, I don't care. I've got to do what's right. And he was implicated in the assassination plot. And then right before the liberation by the Allies, he was hung, he was killed by Hitler's henchmen. Now here's what's what's weird, okay? That took a huge step of faith in Bonhoeffer's life. To be willing to sacrifice his life for what he believed was right and good. Rather than save his own life. And you know what? He has probably done more in his death because he's being read and talked about still to this very day than he would have done if he had stayed alive. So don't always think that trusting God for something big means that you're going to be in the lights and be successful in the eyes of the world and droves of people will be drawn to you or to what you're doing. Sometimes it means a life of suffering and difficulty that results in God being glorified and after the fact, many people's lives 
being changed. Are you willing to trust God? Are you willing to believe God for something bigger and greater than yourself? It's a crisis. Let's pray. God, I pray that you help us to be willing to step out of our comfort zones and begin to believe you and trust you for that which is greater than ourselves, oh God. And not that which will benefit us and please us and make our lives easier, but that, Lord, which conforms us to your purpose in this world. God, where are the Daniels and the Davids and the Joshuas and the Abraham and the Moses and the Peters and the Pauls of today, oh God? We live such simple and comfortable lives. God, forgive us. And God, whatever you're showing us in these days that you want us to step out and do and trust you, God, help us, I pray. Help us, I pray. You know, our worship teams are going to lead us in this last act of worship and an opportunity to really think about and express having a heart that's willing to trust God and step out in faith. I want to invite you and I to experience God by leaning into Him and trusting Him for that which is greater than ourselves.